Today's scripture is Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And thank you, Mindy. Well, good morning, church. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and let's get to work. Romans chapter 3. We've got some ground to cover this morning. Some things to wrestle through this morning together in our text. So Romans 3, as you saw, we're going to be in verses 1 through 20 this morning as we continue through this series in the New Testament book of Romans. And I hope you're following along in your reading guide. I know our life groups, again, are really having some great times of discussion around this. Uh, Wednesday night, we share this a lot, but if you're looking for a place to connect, behind the message, we'll be there Wednesdays at 6.30 to go deeper into some of these things in our uh, Sunday message and have a real good time together in that on Wednesday nights. So Romans chapter 3, I, I kind of want to start this way and set up what we're going to look at. And I, I'll just say this, with all due respect to all of our medical professionals in the room, all our nurses and all our medical assistants and everyone that's in the room, I don't think any of us really like going to the doctor, right? I don't know how it works at your house, but here's kind of the way it is at my house. I mean, I could, I could be having a 104 degree temperature, I'm barking like a dog, you know, I'm nauseous, I'm sick, I don't have any energy. How are you feeling? I'm fine. Everything's okay. My, my, my self-diagnosis sometimes is really out of touch with reality. There was an incident, and I asked my wife permission to share this when we... Uh, <laughs> I did, right? I, I didn't forget. Okay, so 
When we lived in Las Vegas several years ago, around Christmas, we always had a tradition. It was so warm at Christmas time, our family would play touch football with other families on Christmas. And it was so warm, and it just became a tradition. It was highly competitive, as you might imagine. If you know my wife, she's highly competitive. And so this game's going on with these other families, and my wife's playing defensive back. Isn't that awesome? She actually knows what that is, and had a great job at it. And she was covering a pass and she stepped in this hole in the field and just tweaked her knee ever so slightly it was so bad we had to literally carry her off the field and we took her home that evening and we kind of do a self-diagnosis as you can imagine and say honey I think you just tweaked it I think you'll be fine a couple days pass and the swelling continues the pain continues my wife says I think I'm fine baby I might need to go to the doctor and check it out so we took her to the doctor several days later and turns out she had actually broken the tibia bone in her leg and torn her ACL and her husband's diagnosis was you'll be fine husband of the year right on that one the point is we all tend to prefer our self-diagnosis instead of reality we like that we prefer that when it comes to our physical condition and it's absolutely the same reality when it comes to our heart condition or the condition of our soul we would prefer our own self-diagnosis to the condition of our soul than to reality now there's an author, a writer, his name is Paul David Tripp, he's one of my favorites, and he writes this, he says, we all work really hard to convince ourselves that we're better off than we are. We all want to believe that we're not that sinful after all. We compare ourselves to those who seem more sinful than us, we can always find that guy, right? We rewrite our history to make ourselves look better than we really are. We evaluate ourselves by looking into mirrors other than the only true accurate mirror and the mirror of the Word of God. So if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know what's going on at the beginning of, Rome, at the, beginning of the book of Romans. Paul is being very systematic. He's being very accurate and at times very painful to give all humanity an accurate diagnosis of our spiritual condition. It can be painful. It can be sobering. But it's much needed because before we get to the glories of the greatness of the gospel, we must wrestle with the disaster of sin in our own lives. And that's what Paul is doing here. And that's what he's been doing over the past few weeks. He's going to bring this to a crescendo, if you will, in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So Paul's dealt in chapter 1, he's dealt with the immoral pagan. And said to that immoral pagan, if you will, you are in need of the gospel. Your, your sin has separated you from God. You're under the wrath of God. And we saw that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, he says to the moral person. He tries to live by some standard of their own doing. That, uh, that moral person, you too, fall far short of the righteousness of God. And then he comes to the Jew in Romans chapter 2. And he deals with the Jewish self-righteous religious person who many of us can relate with and relate to. And he says, listen, 
Your self-righteousness will never be able to bridge the gap between your unrighteousness and the righteousness of God. He says it will never happen. Paul leaves his diagnosis. We'll get here in Romans 9 again in a few weeks. But he says, but Israel, Romans 9, 31, he says, but Israel pursuing a law of righteousness does not or did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they pursue it not by faith, but as if it were by work. So Paul kind of universally and holistically deals with the immoral, unrighteous, secular person. He deals with the moral person who thinks they've got it all together. He deals with the self-righteous person very clearly. And then he's going to bring it all together in chapter 3 and kind of give us a universal diagnosis of the condition, apart from Christ, of every human being that has ever breathed a breath in this world. Now, Romans chapter 3, verse 1, here's what goes on in the first few verses. If you've read it, you may get down into that. You go, I don't don't know what's going on here. Is Paul in an argument? Is Paul in a debate? So the first few verses of chapter 3, Paul is using a tool called a diatribe. If you go to your teacher and say, I know what a diatribe is, they'll be really impressed. He creates this argument with this fictitious person, and he asks questions that he knows are going to be asked especially from the Jewish self-righteous person. Paul, you're saying that because of my Jewishness, that doesn't earn me a favor before God. Paul, you're saying all Jews aren't just universally saved. And Paul says, absolutely not. It's by faith and repentance in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows there's going to be arguments to that. Any good debater knows the questions that are going to be asked before you ever even present the situation. Any good parent knows what your kids are going to ask you before you ever even tell them what you're going to tell them. So Paul lays out two or three questions here that he knows are going to be asked in this argument about the universal condemnation of all men. I'm going to give you these three questions really quick. Question number one we find in Romans 3.1. They say, okay, if this is true and our Jewishness has no intrinsic merit or favor before God, they say Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the advantage, Paul, of circumcision or all these things that have been entrusted to the Jew? Paul answers verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says there's much advantage to being a Jew. And Paul's going to lay that out when we get in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He says, but as far as earning favor before God, your Jewish heritage doesn't get you there. Continues on. He says, question number two, verse three. Okay, Paul, what if then, what if some Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What does that mean? They're trying to use an argument that somehow God is not keeping his promise. There's an argument that Paul knows is going to rise up out of this, that God is not being completely faithful to his promise. And it goes like this. Paul, we know that God has pronounced favor and blessings on the people of Israel. And there are promises to the nation of Israel that they'll inherit the land and they'll inherit the kingdom. So if all Jews don't inherit the promises... Isn't God being unfaithful? And Paul's going to use a tactic here in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, he answers it with a very strong word in the original language. It's this word, 
meganoita in Greek, and it means may it never be by no means. Paul's like using the power snap. Y'all know what the power snap is? Anybody, anybody have a mom that had the power snap? My wife has the power snap, which means if our kids say something that's just really out of line, they get the power snap. No, sir. May it never be. Y'all relate to that? Paul says, listen, no way. You're trying to say that by a person's individual responsibility of faith and repentance, that a person's unbelief is somehow saying God is unfaithful. And Paul says, no way. Verse 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Paul is basically saying God's collective promises to the nation Israel. Do not negate individual responsibility of faith and repentance. Paul says, yes, God has a purpose for the nation of Israel. But at the same time, it never negates a person's individual responsibility of faith and repentance. And he'll expand that later in the book of Romans. And then there's a third charge, really quick. So here was another question that Paul knew was going to be asked. And evidently he had heard this type of question that goes like this. Okay, verse 5. Well, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way. And then verse 8. And why do we not just do evil that good may come, as some people are slanderously charging us with saying? Here's what they were saying. Paul. If our unrighteousness and sinfulness reveals the glory and the righteousness of God and all the beauty of God's righteousness, how in the world can God be just in condemning us? And Paul says, are you nuts? Do you believe in some way that your sin is the ultimate way God is glorified and therefore it gives you freedom to continue in sin? It would work like this. I try to think of earthly illustrations to come up with this, and Jennifer and I wrestle with some illustrations. It would be something like this. Here's their argument. The next time you're pulled over by a highway patrol, and you are guilty as judged because you've been speeding, and you say to that officer, excuse me, sir, I really don't think you should give me a ticket because in my speeding, you're really glorified as a good officer and keeper of the law. In fact, I really ought to go out and speed more. Because every time I break the law, you get to do your job and you look like a great officer of the law. And I imagine that officer would say something like, may it never be. <laughs> Paul ends this argument and says basically, if you have that line of thinking before God, your condemnation is just. In other words, you might want to stop talking because the more you talk, you reveal your own wicked nature. Paul says your condemnation is just. If you're somehow deriving that God is responsible for your sin and somehow God is to blame for your sin and God would be more glorified by your sin, what you're revealing and what you're saying ultimately is, I really want sin. <laughs> Not God. Paul says that that reveals the heart. So he deals with these arguments here quickly, and then he gets into the real meat of the passage. He goes on down, and he continues on. Verse 9, he says, okay, let me just pull all this together, Paul says, in a final diagnosis of the condition of all mankind. 
Verse 9, he says, what then? What then? How do we conclude all of this? He spent a couple chapters wrestling with the condition of men. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... If you write in your Bible, that's the heart of the next eight or nine verses. The word all is going to appear like eight or nine times. The word every eight or nine times. That all, both Jews, the self-righteous religious, Greeks, the secular non-religious, all are under sin. Verse 10, the summation statement, really the crescendo of this whole argument, Paul says... As it is written, and he goes back to Scripture, and he begins quoting Scripture from the Old Testament. He says, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And Paul, in a very systematic, deliberate, accurate, often painful way, comes to the conclusion that we don't want and we are unable to recognize of ourselves apart from Christ, that apart from the person of Jesus Christ, every person every ever breathing is under the same judgment of God because of sin. There is none, none righteous. No, not one. Seems like Paul adds that little tag, no, not one, because he knows when he declares there is none righteous, there, there would be a, yeah, but what about, not one. But what about granny? I mean, she was so, no, not one. What about the Pharisee leaders? They were so out, not one. Apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, the assessment of all humanity and all mankind is there is none righteous, no, not one. Now let's just be real honest this morning. Some things that the Bible drops down as the plumb line of truth are very countercultural, right? Paul's assessment of the condition of the human soul apart from Christ, you will not hear on CNN and Fox News. And you're not going to hear it in the media that floods our minds. And you're not going to hear it in the magazines we read. You're going to hear, you're okay, I'm okay, they're okay, we may have a few issues, but everybody's okay. And Paul says, everyone is not okay apart from Christ. It's the assessment. And he goes on and he explains the, really the depth in these next few verses of the consequences and the, the outcome of this being under sin in our lives. Now, let me just stop right here for a minute and try to give you the big truth that we're going to wrestle with this morning. Then I'll give you some big ideas that kind of flow out of that. Here's, here's the big truth I think Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3. It's this, that God righteously declares all guilty because of the unrighteousness of all. So whether you're in Mumbai, like I was a few weeks ago, whether you're in Morristown, whether you're here in East Tennessee, wherever you are, the judgment of all humankind is the same and right that God righteously declares all guilty because of the unrighteousness of all. Now, anytime you hear that, I think before we even walk down through these verses a little bit more, let me, let me, let me try to establish a reality for us this morning. The argument might go something like this. Okay, 
Mike, whose righteousness are you talking about? You're talking about the standard of righteousness. and I, Whose righteousness are you talking about? Because our tendency will be to compare ourselves to someone else and find ourselves much more righteous than them, whoever the them is. Right? We're very good at that. I just want to make very clear, and I think we know this this morning, but just as a reminder, the righteousness that God is describing here is His own standard of righteousness. Who he is. It's not some line he has drawn in the sand. It's not some external rule to say, okay, here's what I'm asking you to live up to. No, it's the very character of who God is himself. Jesus is referred to in 1 John 2 as the righteous one. So the mistake we can often make is we can say, okay, well in all of this, I'm not as bad as that guy. And when compared to that person, I'm much more righteous than they are. Here's an illustration to help you with that uh, this morning really quick. So let's imagine, let's imagine you have three people. And, and these three people are going to take on a goal, and they believe they can, they're going to swim to Japan. And they're going to swim to Japan from California, all right? you got three people. So the first person, he's all ready to go, and he goes running down the beach. And before he ever even hits the water, he trips in the sand and falls flat on his face, and his face is a mess, and that's where he ends up. That'd probably be me. He didn't even make it in the water. Second person is a little more athletic. They're a little more prepared. They've been working out. They actually make it in the water, and they swim out, and they make it two miles Compared to me, compared to the guy laying on the sand on the beach, they're doing awesome. And then you got the third guy, and he's really buffed, and he's really athletic. He's probably from Irwin. He's really a tough dude, and he's got his, he's got his floats and his flippers and his mask, and he jumps out in the water, and he's going to go, and he swims, and he makes it 20 miles. Compared to the guy who made it a mile, he's doing awesome compared to the guy laying on the beach in the sand he's incredible but when you compare it to the 5,320 miles left to go to Japan he is infinitely short of a goal the point is simple though all may not be as evil as we could all be all fall infinitely short of the perfect glorious righteousness of God that's the point Paul says, all in light of the glory and the beauty of who God is left to ourselves infinitely short. Now he's going to dive down into these verses a little bit deeper and it's like a doctor who kind of takes his diagnosis and he opens it up a little bit more and it goes a little deeper. So let's continue on. He says this, I'm going to give you four or five big ideas. Big idea number one is this, and it's important to understand Paul's going to teach the effect of sin in our lives. This is a tough pill to swallow. He goes on, he says this, big idea number one, all people are under the power of sin, verse 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What does that mean? That means left in our natural condition, the word under means under the control of, under the domination. Apart from Jesus Christ, sin is our master. Jesus said the man who sins, John 8, 34, is slave to sin. Paul says all, apart from Christ, are under the power of sin. 
Now theologians used to call this something to the effect of the depravity of man. We are all depraved human beings. Depravity does not mean that we're all as evil as we could be. What it means is that sin has infected and twisted every single aspect of our humanness. All of it. If I had a big bowl of water and I took a, a, a drop of red dye and I dropped it down into that water, it would permeate every part of that water. Paul is trying to get us to see in our own human fallenness, apart from Christ, sin has infected every single part of our humanness. Listen to what he says. He goes on, verse 11. Big idea number two is this, that all people are blind. All people are blind. Verse 11 says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, 3.11. The phrase, no one understands, is another painful pill to swallow. Basically what that means is, in our fallen condition apart from Christ, we don't even have the capacity to see our own condition and to behold the glory of God. We are spiritually blind to the things of God. Did a little study this week, a little National Geographic study. My kids laughed at me for it, but I discovered the blind cave fish. There's a fish that swims around the waters of Mexico, and it's called the blind cave fish. And it lives in caves its whole life. Not only is the blind cave fish blind, it doesn't even have the organ to see light. It doesn't even have eyes as a part of its body. And you say, okay, what's the point? That's our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Paul says, not only do you not understand, you don't even have the capacity in your flesh to know your own condition or to see the greatness and the glory of God. Where do you get that from? 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person, that's all of us the way we were born, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually blind to the things of God. It's our condition. Paul goes on, he he continues the diagnosis. He says, Pastor Mike, I'll be honest, I've had about enough. Okay, it keeps on going. He says, this is a big idea, number three. All people are rebels. Romans 3.11, he says, there's none who understands. No one seeks for God. I'm going to tag it to verse 18 for sake of time. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, what he's saying is sin is essentially self-rule. Sin is cosmic treason that we do not seek God. There is no fear of God in our eyes. And in Romans 1.18, sin is called ungodliness, which implies that we desire to exalt ourselves on the throne of our lives. It is cosmic treason against God. Wow. See, Paul's building this case so that when he lays out these realities, before he gets to the gospel, every mouth is closed like a courtroom and says, the evidence among us or about us is overwhelming. John Stott said this, sin is the revolt of the self against God. 
the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden and the sin that we carry in our own lives, it was cosmic treason against the king of the universe. Sin, ultimately, sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. Wow. It's a little heavier in the courtroom of God's justice. I've not just gone astray. I have raised my hand in cosmic rebellion against the king of the universe. Paul goes on. Says number four, a big idea. Number four, all people are corrupt. Verse 12, he says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There it is, all, none. The word worthless here is a quote from a word in the Old Testament. It means to go bad like the souring of milk. In other words, we've all made the mistake of spilling milk in our car or we've left a glass of milk somewhere. That glass of milk doesn't get better when you leave it out, right? It begins to grow worthless and even more corrupt and it becomes stagnant and nasty. In other words, sin in our hearts apart from Christ doesn't get better. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse individually, by the way, in our lives and in the lives of a culture and a society. How could a culture and a society that we live in do some of the things that our culture and society is doing? And not only doing it, but celebrating it. Paul says it's because we're corrupt. Sin has a corrupting influence in our lives. Big idea number five, he goes on, he says, all people are not only corrupt, all people are rebels. He says, all people are liars. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. I mean, the imagery that Paul gives here of now he goes from our character to our speech and our conduct. The idea is the sin has permeated every area of our lives. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom, the venom of asps is under their tongue. If you look that up, that's a reference to the Egyptian cobra and the venom. And the idea is this, the corrupting influence spills out of our mouth and it is a quick fatal poison that often comes out of the mouths of human beings. Wow. Continues on. It says, not only are all people in our natural condition liars, not only are all people corrupt, not only are all people rebels. He goes on, he says, big idea number six, all people are destructive. Verse 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Paul says, left to themselves, all mankind, we damage, we destroy whatever we touch, we leave a trail of pain and suffering in our wake. That is the condition of all mankind in differing degrees, but all are under this effect and permeation of sin down into every area of our life. Now listen, I'm just going to be painfully honest with you. Paul's assessment here is as countercultural in 2019 in the world as you can get, right? We all know that. We said that earlier. Yeah, we get it. We're not going to hear that in the world. But I'm going to say this too. Paul's assessment here of our own condition apart from Christ is in many ways counter-Christian in 2019. 
Because many of the churches want to espouse a gospel that says something to the effect of, I'm much better than I thought I was, and God is too good to judge. Therefore, we're not even sure you need salvation. And if you do need salvation, you kind of work it out with God. It's a partnership between you and God. Paul says, may it never be. Salvation is from God, not for someone who needs to be not for someone who's just gone off the path, not for someone who's floating out in the water and needs a life raft. You are dead at the bottom of the ocean and need someone to come and give you life. And Paul then goes on and after giving a very painful assessment of the human condition apart from Christ like a jeweler who lays out the black felt before he brings out the glorious diamond and lays it on that black felt Paul continues on and he says verse 19 he concludes he says now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law all men so that every mouth may be stopped Practically, Paul says, after listening of the condition of our soul apart from Christ, what do you, what do I, humanity, have to say for yourself? And the point is, it is to silence every mouth, and we stand in the courtroom as if to say, I have no defense. The only hope I have is the mercy of God. That's the point. And Paul goes on and he says, and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, I'm reading from verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul has just laid out the Old Testament here to give us an awareness of the depth of our depravity before God, so that our lips will be silent and our mouth will be quiet, and we realize my only hope is that God comes to me in a Redeemer and a Savior. That's the point of Romans 1 through 3. And then we're going to break this out next week, and I'll just give you a final big idea here. It's this that the universal unrighteousness of mankind reveals the universal desperate need for the gospel. To talk about the essential nature of God's grace, which is exactly what he does in the next six, seven chapters of the book of Romans. He first had to deal with the disaster of sin in our own lives. You get to verse 21, and after laying all of this out in the courtroom, we are guilty. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. To those who are judged guilty, God holds out a Savior. To those whom sin has left dead, God holds out Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. To those who are blind spiritually, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And to those who believe they're self-righteous, Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, because there are none, by the way, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus said, I have come to seek. You know why? Because we ain't seeking him. Jesus said, in grace I have come to seek out 
and to save and to redeem those who are lost. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And to Nicodemus, a Pharisee who believed he could accomplish it his own righteousness, Jesus said, hey, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. See, Paul gloriously holds out the beauty of the gospel message. And I so love how Paul David Tripp says it. He says, when we look at this, if we are not overwhelmed with the glory of the gospel of Christ and that God has invaded our lives by grace, we have never really come to terms with the depth of our own depravity. And Paul says, hallelujah, what a savior. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to save those who believe. Hallelujah, what a savior. Amen. So this morning we're going to respond to this gospel in kind and we're going to respond this way. In just a minute, Pastor Jeff's going to come and lead us uh, through the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to invite the team to come on up and just to begin to play. I'm hoping that you take the Lord's Supper this morning in a way maybe you've never taken it before as you remember the value of the cross and the death and the blood of Jesus Christ as your only hope like you've never seen it before. But right there where you're seated as our team comes and just begins to play, how do we respond to something like this? Number one, I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, there's a group of us that gathered over here this morning and we were just praying for you and we were praying that eyes would be open this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never placed faith in Jesus Christ because you've never seen your need for Him, Our prayer is that this morning will be the moment of salvation for you. In just a few moments when we prepare to take the Lord's Supper as some are coming down front, I'm going to invite, if that's you, and you know that you've never come to know Christ, I'm going to invite you just to slip out from where you're seated. During the Lord's Supper, through those doors, there's going to be a group of people there to meet with you and answer your questions and help you walk through understanding how to know Jesus. You may be here and you are a believer and you... You know Jesus Christ, but maybe for the first time or again this morning, you have been reminded, I was hopeless, helpless, dead, and Jesus has given me life. And maybe you can say like you've never said before, the gospel is good news. It's good news. And maybe as a church, we're reminded what we say over and over again. Ours is to share this message of good news as the only So I'm going to invite you just to bow your head for a minute. Pastor Jeff's going to come on up and he's going to walk us through preparation for the Lord's Supper. It's going to be a time of reflection and a time of soul searching there in your own heart. And then we'll celebrate this great gift of the Lord's Supper together. So Jeff, why don't you come on and lead us through?